Well, this past week, the federal justice minister, David Lametti, delivered on a promise made by the government last year and named a special independent interlocutor to coordinate the government's response to the unmarked graves that have been identified at a number of former residential school sites across this country. Kimberly Murray is that interlocutor. She is Mohawk, originally from Ganesataki in Quebec, a lawyer by training. She is the former executive director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Ontario's first assistant, um, first person to work with the Attorney General on Indigenous rights. Uh, for the last year, she's also been overseeing an investigation into the deaths at the former Mohawk Institute Residential School near Bradford, Ontario. She has a lot of work ahead. It is a complex file, uh, but to talk about it and to explain what the role is and how it will work, and what she hopes to achieve. Kimberly Murray joins me now. Thank you so much for your time and congratulations. Thank you. So for listeners who may not be familiar with this, I know the the federal government had spoken about this uh, last year, but what exactly is the role of the special interlocutor? Um, Well, I would say the first part of the role is to continue the conversation with First Nation communities and survivors about uh, the barriers that they're facing and wanting to start the work and continue the work that they've already started uh, for searching for missing children and unmarked burials. Um, And the second part of the work uh, entails doing a review of the legislation uh, that exists or doesn't exist uh, and trying to make recommendations for a new framework, a new legal legal framework uh, for Canada to protect these grounds. Because I, I realize there is two challenges here. One, and because we've spoken to Roseanne Casimir, one is that these individual communities are, are challenged by trying to deal with just the sheer work that needs to be done to both find uh, find these graves and also preserve them. It, it is difficult for these little individual communities to do that to do that work, I suspect. Yeah, I I mean, I think a a lot of communities that are uh, the communities that have the former residential schools in their territories uh, need to um, have, uh, not all, but many uh, need some help in finding, determining where to start. Where do we start? How do we get a ground penetrating radar? How do we get records? Um, uh, You know, where do we start the search? Uh, Where do we find the survivors? Because uh, you can appreciate and understand that kids were taken to these schools from all over. So there's the local knowledge, uh, certainly of the survivors that are living in the territory. Uh, But in some of the locations, most of the survivors are outside of the territory. um, And it's really important to speak with them and their families to get information uh, about uh, what happened in that institute and where where the search focus should be. Uh, And you know, I think I said this uh, earlier in the week at the press conference, every location, every site will have its own unique challenges uh, that will have to be addressed. And its own unique community and what their wishes are and how they want to approach it. I mean, I, just from the, the interviews that we've done, we realize that every community has its very has a different attitude towards this, or at least a different, maybe not a different end goal, but certainly uh, lots of different conversations going on within the community about how best to approach this in a way that uh, is respectful to the people who are there. Um, Absolutely. And and we may have a conflict in the community and between communities about whether uh, repatriation will happen of remains, uh, whether they will excavate remains, Um, you know, and survivors talk about, you know, repatriation doesn't always mean repatriating the remains. It's also important about about the spirit. And so ceremonies have to happen. And those ceremonies can be many different types of ceremonies because, again, the children that were in the schools came from many different nations. Um, And so it's a very difficult conversation for communities 
uh, to have. And, and then on top of that, having to figure out the data management and the, the legal framework and do we call the police in and the coroner? And, you know, so there's a lot of difficult, uh, important decisions that are resting on them that they have to make. You mentioned the legal framework earlier. How about, what about that aspect? Clearly there needs to be, uh, there needs to be rules in place that allow this work to be done properly. Yeah, absolutely. We don't have a, a federal legislation to protect, protect these grounds. Uh, so we have a, a, uh, a mix mash of legislation across the provinces and territories. Uh, every province has a coroner's act of some form. There's the burials and cremation acts. Um, do they talk to each other? When is it a police investigation? When is it a coroner's investigation? When does it become an, you know, an archaeological dig? Um, so there, there's a, a lot of that that needs to be sorted out. Um, and then there's, you know, the issues about private property. If these these um, old sites of residential schools are owned privately, we don't have a mechanism right now in place for, say, the federal government to buy out that property so we can protect it. So uh, for communities that want to search private land, they have to go to the, the, the landowners and say, may we come on your property to do this search? Um, so... You know, there's a lot of different things that, that um, uh, are uh, challenges and barriers uh, that uh, my office will be looking at in the next two years. How about access to records? Because that always comes up when we, when we speak about this. Yeah, there is, again, when we talk about different legislations, there's provincial, federal legislations. Um, you know, every province and territory has their privacy legislation, access to information, as does the federals. It's a se- separate uh, legislation. And the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation has its own legislation as well. Um, And those legislations are not uh, um, as accessible uh, to the community for them to access these records. And so is there something more we can do? Is there something we can do to the legislations in the provinces and territories and federally to make this more accessible for people? And then add to it, the churches, <laughs> right? That there's that whole barrier of getting access to church records. So when you starting off in this role, when you look at what's out there, what's being done, do you feel like there's a, there's a long road to travel here to try to make sure that everything is in place to allow these searches to take place in the way that they should? Um, uh, uh, yes, it's it's going to be a long road. I also, you know, when I hear from the government, uh, the federal government, you know, sometimes they say there's 60 communities there or there's 70. Uh, I'm unclear on the number right now that have uh, received uh, financial support from the federal government to start this work. Uh, there were, depending on what number you go with, there were 140 Indian residential schools in operation. And then add some of the other locations that people are interested in searching, like the Indian hospitals um, and other types of institutions. Um you know, that's a long way, that's a long road, as you say, to go. Uh, we're just starting this process. Communities are just really getting started. Uh, what in terms of just physically, what do you have to deliver? Or how does this work in terms of your mandate and, and what you're expected to deliver and when? Uh, and, and will the federal government be obliged to, to act on what you recommend? Um, so I am, uh, my, the the mandate requires me to deliver an interim report in one year, so June 14th, 2023, um, and then I'm required to provide a final report in two years. Um, I would say this, I might not wait one year to make some recommendations immediately uh, once I start 
getting out there and speaking to communities. Um, I see no need to wait. If, if I see an urgent need, uh, I may speak out. And there's nothing in my mandate that tells me I can't. Um, will the government implement it? That's anyone's guess, right? Uh, Minister Lametti was asked this question uh, at the press conference this week, and his response was, well, I can't answer that until I know what the recommendations are. <laughs> so I guess if my recommendation isn't suitable in the government's mind, then maybe it won't get implemented. But we shall see. And, um, you know, I, I think there's some fear uh, about there uh, in relation to the recommendations because the mandate includes how do we apply Indigenous law? Uh, how do we apply the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People? And so, uh, you know, the idea that we're not going to commit to the recommendation uh, is probably based on their concepts of constitutional law and, you know, this, this, well, this worry about, well, what is Indigenous law and what does the United Nations Declaration actually say we're supposed to do? <laughs> Yes, a, a lawyerly, a lawyerly response from the uh, from the federal government, I would imagine. I'm speaking with Kimberly Murley. She is the federal government's newly appointed special interlocutor on unmarked graves at former residential schools. Coming up, we'll talk a bit more just about her decision to take on the role, and also just there is been obviously talk of of, of criminal investigations here. I would imagine these would run uh, in parallel to the work that you're doing, but how might they complement each other? And we'll get to that after this. Our guest this half hour is Kimberly Murray. She's the newly appointed federal government special interlocutor on unmarked graves at former residential schools. We're just talking about the kind of work that she'll be doing to try to facilitate uh, these searches. So many different communities around the country uh, trying to tackle what is a very uh, sensitive and very and very difficult uh, challenge, which is trying to locate and and then preserve uh, these unmarked graves. Uh, Kimberly Murray, if if just your your decision to take on this role, because we now know, and you were involved with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission very, very closely. Uh, there's been such a, a spotlight shone now on 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 this history uh, that you must look at this and think that this is a, a very important moment uh, in this story. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't an easy decision to accept this appointment, um, and. Uh, I had to think long and hard about it and consult with my family and elders and community members. Uh, you know, it was really important to me that uh, Ghana Sitage, my First Nation, was supportive of me taking this position because, you know, I would never want to take a role where my position, my community is opposed to the position. Right. Uh, so, um, so that was really important to me. And um, I see it as a continuation of the work of the TRC. Um, I was heavily involved in volume four of the uh, TRC report, which is the volume on uh, missing children and unmarked burials. And um, since the report came out, I've always been like, what's going on? No one's picked up those calls to action in relation to the missing children. Um, so it really is sort of an extension of the work that I'd already had been involved in when it when the TRC was in existence. Has, how, have you, how do you see what's happened over the last year in terms of just the, the, the national reconciliations that, that's happened with, as you mentioned, something that was already widely reported and widely known in that very chapter of that document? Yeah, I've reflected on that because during the TRC, twice we came out in the five-year mandate talking about the burials and the missing children. And both times there was a large media response, international response from media. Uh, there was the spotlight was put on and then it disappeared. Um, but I think it's one thing to have 
the, the, the numbers, this many kids died. It's another when you now have, oh, oh, these are where the burials are. We are seeing that this is where the location of those children are. It, I think, takes it to another level. It has Canadians really, you know, taking them out of their minds to their heart, as the TRC wanted people to do. Um, and so it's something about that, I think. And then I like to think, <laughs> I could be wrong, but I like to think, that the education of the public has improved. Uh, as we were doing the national events at the TRC, we had education days where we brought in high school kids, university students that came and learned the history of Indian Residential School. And they're now adults. They're now young adults, and they're outraged mm -hmm. that this is happening. And so I like to think that it's that change of our collective awareness of um, the Indian residential schools that's uh, also informing the response that we're seeing now. How difficult do you think it will be in your role to try to at least um, maintain or, or establish a level of trust between all these communities, whether it be criminal or, or just jurisdictional, uh, a level of trust between a lot of these communities who, who do look to the federal government and policing and so forth with a lot of suspicion? Yeah, I mean, it, that is a massive, um, a massive hurdle for sure in my position, especially when it comes to the prosecution issue or the policing issue. I mean, it's no secret the TRC wrote about it. Many commissions have written about the failed justice system. And when we talk about residential schools, Indian residential schools, there were failed police investigations. There was one in British Columbia, the E-Division. Uh, there were failed police investigations in Ontario uh, uh, with the St. Anne's Residential School, failed prosecutions. And so absolutely, there's a problem. Um, and so maybe it's time we think about a different way to do the investigations if they're going to be criminal investigations. Maybe we look to different types of policing models. Maybe we look to a different type of prosecution model. Um, of course, you know, I can hear DOJ, but the Constitution. Right. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be my challenge, how I uh, make those recommendations, if that's where we go, depending on what the communities have to say to us. And I would say this, too, because I know British Columbia in particular uh, survivors and communities have been calling uh, for an international response. Um, and uh, my mandate is not to stop that. My mandate is not to interfere with that. And certainly, if there's anything I can do to help in the calls of survivors and communities to make that happen, I, I'm here. I'm here for people to um, ask for support in whatever way that they need to get this work done. It seems like such a, a tall, ta a big task. Where where does one begin? Where 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 will you start? Um, well, I will start with going to and speaking to the communities that have already invited me to come and speak to them. So uh, I, my calendar is already full <laughs> uh, for the next uh, few weeks. Um, and those are mostly the communities that have already started the work um, and hearing from them the challenges. Um, I, you know, I'm doing some staffing right now. I'm doing some strategic planning and looking at the mandate and really uh, sort of putting a work plan in place of how we're going to get this all done. Um, I have a lot of background in this area, so I, I, I'm not starting from scratch, and I think that that helps uh, for me to be able to meet the two-year mandate. Kimberly Murray, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.